Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, a new email raises more questions about when the defence minister knew about allegations against the former chief of the defence staff. It's an email from the minister's chief of staff at the time, Zita Ashrafis, who writes to the ombudsman and says in that email, I trust that you raised the allegations relating the GIC appointment that you raised with the minister. Canadians could soon see the approval of a fourth COVID vaccine. The review of the Johnson & Johnson submission is going very well. It's progressing and we're expecting to have that completed in a decision uh, in the next few days, I would say within the next seven days or so. And more discussion about what might be in the upcoming federal budget. You will see that the Conservatives and the Liberals and the NDP are going to be quite friendly between themselves in order to make sure that the government will go through this budget. But I'm not even certain that the government will want to vote on this budget. It's Friday, March the 5th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief, Althea Raj. Good morning, Althea. Good morning, Mark. Let's start with the breaking news this morning concerning the allegations against the former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Jonathan Vance, and who knew what and when. There is a newly released email today that appears to support Gary Wolborn's assertion, he's the former military ombudsman who testified earlier this week at the Defence Committee, that he actually did tell the Defence Minister, Harjit Sajjan, about allegations of sexual misconduct uh, three years ago. Uh, Give us the latest on this. Yeah, so basically the Canadian press, uh, unclear from their story if they had this email previously but didn't really know what it meant or uh, if they've just recently received it. Um, But the email basically suggests that, well, the email says, it's an email from uh, Sajjan, the minister's chief of staff at the time, Zita Ashrafis, who writes to um, the ombudsman and says in that email, I trust that you raised the allegations relating the GIC appointment that you raised with the minister. Now, he, uh, the ombudsman, Mr. Walburn, would not confirm specifically um, whether or not that email was related to General Vance. Um, He responded back uh, to the Canadian press that he believes this was covered in his testimony, but he didn't say yes or no. I think we're in a situation where it doesn't, Nobody's offering clear answers, so we don't have a clear picture. Um, we know that the minister earlier this week said he disagreed with parts of Mr. Walborn's testimony, but he didn't say which parts he disagreed with. Um, and the Privy Council has been adamant that the information that they received um, was not enough to act upon. So lots more questions, I think, uh, that this general that this email generates, and I'm sure the opposition MPs uh, are going to try to be pressing for some answers. All right. Let's turn to the subject of vaccines. Uh, we're hearing more about approvals and about rollout plans, uh, and yet at the same time, uh, there, there is evidence that a growing number of Canadians uh, don't think the government's doing a good job with this. Um, I'm sure that will has the potential to change anyway as as vaccines are actually deployed across the country in the weeks ahead. But as we finish this week, where do you think we stand on all of this? Yeah, the Premier is had a uh, meeting on Thursday. Um, Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, uh, said he thought the federal government's 
our response had been disappointing at best. And as you alluded to, we've had several surveys now, public opinion polls that suggest that a growing number of Canadians also think the government is doing a bad job. But there were um, there was bright news on the horizon, <laughs> if I could say that on Thursday. Um, the government announced that on, well, I think we actually saw footage um, earlier, but uh, the 500,000 doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine had arrived. And basically, um, Canada is going to have 1.8 million doses of vaccine this week and next week. So many more Canadians will be able to get vaccinated. And of course, also this week, we heard that the National Advisory Committee has recommended that you can increase uh, the interval between the doses to four months. So many of the provinces, uh, now Quebec and Ontario, it seems like the others may join as well, BC's lead, uh, to, to vaccinate as many people as they can with the first vaccine, with the first dose, uh, before getting their second dose, because it seems the first dose is rather effective. Um, although, as uh, Manitoba's Premier yesterday, Brian Pallister, said, um, we have no idea how long uh, the inoculation from the first dose lasts, and we have no idea how uh, effective it will be against the variants. Still with the pandemic, we've been hearing for a long time that there have been negotiations going on between the airline industry and the federal government on a possible bailout package. Of course, the airlines have been hit hard by the dramatic reductions in travel as a result of the pandemic, and it appears they are closer and closer to a deal that could be worth billions of dollars. What's the latest on that? Yeah, CBC was reporting this yesterday, and what I'm hearing is that they're pretty close to an actual deal. Um, The reason it has, or at least it seems on the public's point of view, I would think that this has dragged on for a long time, is that the airlines, uh, up until very recently, have not been um, active players in the negotiations. Um, it wasn't really until the federal government imposed the health restrictions and basically banning those uh, flights down south uh, for March break that, or spring break, I should say, because not everybody has their break in March, um, <laughs> that uh, airlines uh, have come uh, more completely to the table. Basically, Ottawa asked for uh, confidential business documents in order to... Um, see the scope at which the new the bailout, uh, what form that should take. And it seems that that information was not forthcoming. But CBC was reporting yesterday that uh, the bailout could soar beyond $7 billion. Um, this is Unifor. The, uh, the union is basically saying that uh, it's going to be in the form of a loan that um, one of the conditions is going to be uh, not just that, well, from the airline's point of view, that <laughs> Ottawa gives them money to repay um, the passengers who had, or the would-be passengers who bought tickets and did not get a refund, right. um, that they would get a refund uh, as part of this uh, bailout package. The other thing that's really interesting, though, is that there are things that Ottawa really wants to ensure. They want to ensure that the regional routes that were cut earlier this year are restored so the country is connected to each other and that staff um, who were who were let go are rehired and that the airlines don't use this opportunity to basically let go of long-standing unionized staff to hire new employees instead. So they're, they're still negotiating, but uh, there's, there's possible news on the horizon and uh, they're, they're inching closer to a deal. And I think if I can add one thing, Mark, um, is that, you know, when we talked about the the auto bailout in the last big recession that hit this country, um, 
in some ways, I think that might be a useful. You know, we're also hearing uh, Ottawa could become a partner. Uh, Ottawa, it's not just grants and loans. That there, there are other options there. Right. So um, it, it will be interesting to, to see what they come up with. And uh, this has the attention of basically the top of the almost top Mandarin in the in the public service, Michael Sabia, the deputy minister of finance, is leading this, these negotiations personally. So. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah, a great point. Important. It it will be interesting to see if it follows in any way the model of the of the auto industry bailout of of uh, twelve thirteen years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about since we're talking about money and and government finances here. Uh, we're expecting a budget in the weeks ahead. Lots of questions about where money will be spent, how much money will be spent, how much money can be spent, um, and I know that. Provincial governments are looking for more health care funding, so bring us up to date on that. Yeah, so basically on Thursday, the premiers held a virtual press conference reiterating the demands that they had made in December. They want Ottawa to increase its share of health care spending, so they want bigger boosts to the Canada health transfer. What they're saying is that Ottawa right now pays only 22 cents on the dollar, a far cry from the ideal, in their mind, 50-50 split. Um, Ottawa disputes that. They say that the premiers are not taking into account the tax points that were transferred to them. They're only looking at cash, and that uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, they've involved the finance department to kind of settled on what the picture really looks like. But that's basically the details. They are united, the premiers, that is, in their demand for unconditional uh, recurring, predictable health care funding. They want an extra $28 billion a year. And... Ottawa had, until Thursday, said not said whether they would agree to unconditional transfers. The Prime Minister had said in December, yep, I agree with you, Ottawa needs to spend more money, and we will, we will talk about that after COVID is over. The Premiers yesterday basically said they want to see this in the budget. That is not going to happen. Uh, the federal government has been pretty clear about that. Um, but what was new yesterday, frankly, is that the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, Dominic LeBlanc, was on... Uh, CBC News' program, Power and Politics, and actually said that, uh, you know, once COVID is over, the government would be ready to negotiate predictable, reoccurring, unconditional transfers. Mm. And so uh, that may be a bit of a coup (laughs) for the provinces who were worried that Ottawa was going to try to tie the money to outcomes or to buckets, as it had in the last funding agreement, so in 2017, right. for example, Ontario's agreement, Quebec's, and basically everybody's, has specific money for mental health and home care. Those were the priorities at the time. And Trudeau was suggesting that he wanted to see pharmacare and, you know, standards on long-term care. And I think Ottawa is keeping its powder dry, but it seems like uh, Dominic LeBlanc has let the cat out of the bag. Okay. We will see what happens. Althea, thank you for joining us today. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. You too, Mark. That's Althea Raj, HuffPost Canada's Ottawa Bureau Chief. These are new vaccines with new manufacturing processes, with new approval processes. And uh, as we move forward, we've had to listen to and respect uh, the best experts and the best science uh, around how to keep Canadians safe. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Thomas Wacom considers the differing expert opinions on increasing the time between COVID vaccination shots. Wacom writes, When the experts disagree, mere mortals are left in a state of befuddlement. What are we to do? Whose advice should we follow? 
Vaccination is seen as the key to reopening, and as a result, politicians have focused on vaccines. Anything that encourages vaccination is viewed as good. Anything that interferes with it is deemed bad. But is delaying the second shot the safest way to go? The scientists disagree. At globalnews.ca, Roy Green predicts we'll need to carry proof before we can return to the way things were. Green writes, What will be the return for rolling up your sleeve? Will you be free to return to your place of employment? Will mall parking lots be full? Will stadiums repopulate with chanting fans? I will suggest yes, with a trade-off in the form of displaying a proof of vaccination. I suspect that when so-called national herd immunity numbers are reached, the shedding of masks in return for displaying a certification of vaccination will not become an issue of compromising charter or constitutional rights, at least not immediately. In an editorial, the Toronto Sun argues politicians must own their pandemic blunders. The Sun writes, Politicians have warned that ignoring their advice would contribute to the spread of COVID-19. That's true. What they have failed to acknowledge is that their mistakes have contributed to the spread of COVID-19 as well. For example, the early mistake of not maintaining adequate stockpiles of personal protection equipment and being slow to close our borders. Our government should acknowledge their blunders. We need to find a way out of this mess we're all in, and a lack of forthrightness from our officials doesn't help. Now here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will speak with the President of Peru and will also join with members of Cabinet to address Canadians on the COVID-19 situation. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole will speak at an event hosted by the Oakville Chamber of Commerce. Green Party leader Annamie Paul will host a roundtable discussion with student climate leaders from across Canada. And Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc will attend a virtual infrastructure announcement. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, March the 5th. Tune in to Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.